This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country. This is the site that would have met those who were injured from the Royal Navy when they first entered into Hasler Hospital itself. And for young boys who wouldn't have seen half this sort of of grandeur, you know, it must have been a very overwhelming experience. They're traumatised from a battle, they've been injured, and then they look at something this grand as they're brought in. Well, if you believe the fact that they were press-ganged, they probably lived in hovels as children, and then injured, having served their country, probably not set foot on land for the last five or six years, and then injured, they come on a handcart through this gate, which slams behind them, there's centuries to see that nobody escapes and then you face the main facade of Hasler Hospital once considered to be the largest continuous red brick building in Europe It's amazing, for for this week's open country I'm in a place that is just bursting at the seams with history, it's the site of the Royal Hasler Hospital on the Gosport Peninsula which overlooks the Solent we're only a few hundred yards from Portsmouth Harbour, in fact Standing here as we are at the main entrance to the hospital, if I turn my back on it, I can even see a Union flag flying on a mast uh, just uh, poking up uh, beyond some of the buildings behind us. And I'm with Eric Burbeck, who has Haslar in his blood, I think it's fair to say. Eric, just tell me about your connections with it very briefly. Uh, I joined here on the 30th of September 1964 as a young 17-and-a-half-year-old to enter the Royal Naval Medical Branch to be trained by the Navy to care for persons in the Navy and I stood here myself and thought wow here I am 50 years later still associated with Hasler and some people say yes it does run in my blood but you can't help it. I know that you're going to take us through this entrance aren't you and you're going to show us exactly what it would have been like for those men and boys at some of the you know the biggest battles of, of British history being brought up here for treatment. Through these gates have passed sailors army personnel from the massive battles and global expansion that Britain carried out during the 18th and 19th and 20th century. We can claim the casualties of Trafalgar. We had the retreating army soldiers from the Peninsula War. Russians in 1808-1809 from Admiral Senyevin's fleet of 13 ships impounded in uh, Goswalt and Portsmouth Creeks, Crimea, Waterloo. We could be here all day as I list them, and especially First World War, Second World War, D-Day, where we had not only Commonwealth and Allied troops, we had German prisoners of war as well. You're very kindly going to open the main doors here so that we can follow in the footsteps of some of those patients. Yes, can we, we take can. those steps? Yes, and we can get take those steps doors? now. Great. And we'll walk okay. through the blue uh, doors of the arcade. And have those doors always been blue? Is that a yes. significant colour? Yes. They're still the same hinges uh, when you look at them. They're heavy, really? thick wooden doors. There's a lot of Hasler that is original from the bricks that were handmade. Uh, by John Turner's team when they came to build the hospital uh, to all the woodwork and as you can see the windows are Georgian windows, sash windows because Hasler is a heritage site and therefore we have to maintain 
the fabric of the hospital as it was uh, when it was built. Eric, the slamming of the door shut behind us there really does reinforce what you were saying in the early days about this being as much a prison as it was a hospital. But we've come now into the receiving area, I suppose, for, for the wounded. After a battle, what would it have looked like in here in the early days? I think it would be horrendous. Um, if we can go back to that scene where on the Sunday, the 1st of December, those from Trafalgar arrived here, uh, they would have been brought up on handcart. They would have laid out on the stones here, waiting to be seen by the hospital mate in the receiving room and evaluated and put into the wards. It is, can be said that many bled their lifeblood into the stones. In fact, there were reports in the early days of the hospital of some 86 bodies laying around the hospital for the want of burial in one day alone. And would that have been because it was so busy, people were so overwhelmed by the number of casualties coming in? Oh, quite easily, yes, quite easily. Because just going to that one period of Trafalgar, the 1st of December, there was four ships worth and many injured. On the 4th of December, the main fleet with Victory arrived and offloaded the dead and dying. In fact, we have people who died from the Battle of Trafalgar interred in the grounds here of the hospital. Well, I'm with Peter Darby now, who's another Haslar man through and through, a member of the Haslar Heritage Group, but also someone who worked here for many years, Peter, when it was a working hospital. We, we're talking as the maintenance continues for the grounds. I mean, even though m much of the site isn't used anymore, the, the grounds are, are being very well maintained at the moment. And where we are now, it's the G block, which was built in 1910, was a psychiatric block, but it used to have people with mental illness. We treat it completely different nowadays. But in the old days, when the hospitals opened, they didn't know how, what to do. And when this was built, they actually cordoned it all off. And... You, on the plans where you see here with the summer house, this was called the lunatic airing grounds. So people were locked up in the building, but during the day they'd all be left out outside of the sea air with a guard, and once it got dark, they're back in again. And people lived here for years because they didn't understand what to do. Actually, Peter, as we walk around the block, one window does give me a bit of a shudder as we walk past it, and that's this one right in front of us here, which has got bars oh, the barred the window. Yes, well, this is actually the site of the padded cell, because in those days, of course, people used padded cells for mental health issues. You know, if they're violent, throw them in there and lock the door. I was in there last year myself, not as a patient, obviously, <laughs> but I just thought, out of curiosity, went in there, shut the door, I thought, I've got to get out of here pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> it must uh, have been pretty eerie. creepy. It is, and uh, mental illness was treated completely differently as it is today. I know, of course, it's a lot better today, but in those days, people were very ignorant and they just locked people up, put them in baths or whatever, put them in the airing grounds, but there's no treatment in those days. Post-traumatic stress disorder, the mental trauma of, of battle, that sort of thing, not, not recognised. And indeed, we saw that shortly after this was built with the response to some of the people suffering from shell shock in, well, in World War I. Absolutely, yeah. No, even people were shot for shell shock in those days. And nowadays, it's, uh, well, I don't think we've got it completely right yet for our veterans, but um, we're getting there. I've come into the Memorial Gardens part of the Royal Haslar site now, and this is a, a particularly 
important part of the site for a variety of reasons. Chris Robson is uh, working hard here. Chris used to be an intensive care nurse, but now she, she helps to maintain these gardens. Can I interrupt your hoeing for one second, Certainly, Chris? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, tell me why the Memorial Garden site is, is so significant. It's a bit of a place of a haven, I guess, for quite a long time. It used to be a cemetery, it then became a memorial garden. And once the site was left, the uh, memorial garden really had no purpose. But a fantastic lady called Carol, she'd been working with service families and veterans. She'd heard of a project called Gardening Leave, which was providing horticultural therapy for veterans. And then she came on a heritage day. She came to the garden. Nothing was happening here. It was really just slightly neglected. And she just thought, how fantastic. There's lots of veterans in Gosport. There's probably quite a lot of them who actually suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health problems and wouldn't it be great to have somewhere for them to come so she started the project and it's hard for me to imagine now this site being a little bit neglected because it's such a beautiful site there's a sort of I suppose a a kind of a more natural looking but still maintained area across the path Mm -hmm. behind you there where there are some lovely mature trees grassland bedding plants that sort of thing and then where we are now I suppose this is the the horticultural part, isn't it? This is where yes. you're, you're growing vegetables. Yeah. You've got polytunnels behind us, greenhouses, mm-hmm. and here you've got you've got beds. And I notice you're hoeing. Can I give you a hand oh, while we chat? We certainly can. <laughs> Funny enough, I have a spare. Oh, hoe. do you? Well, that's very. <laughs> I suppose you, you always have a, a, spare, a spare piece spare, of equipment to yeah, rope someone absolutely. in, do you? Um, because for the veterans, how they use the garden is really completely up to them. They can come in and they can just sit. And sometimes when the veterans first come, they are really struggling to socialise. So just for them to be here, they can bring a book, a sketch pad, and they can just find a quiet place to sit. But if they feel like coming to do some gardening, they can do that. Or they might just want to come down and have a chat and have a cup of coffee. Well, Chris, I've seen a few veterans around here mm-hmm. working very hard uh, perhaps you could introduce me to uh, to someone and we could have a chat about what this place means to him yes certainly we've got roy who i think he's in the polytunnel at the moment oh, so if we go down there yes lovely there you go. hello roy hi hi nice to meet you how are you all right not too bad good it's a little bit warmer in here it's actually a little bit warm it's a bit yes. keen out there today a little bit it? chilly so what are you doing in here well, I actually got some uh, winter salad stuff growing. Just cleared out some cucumbers, which we had a late crop of cucumbers. Quite successful. Everyone said we couldn't do it and proved them wrong. Can I ask about your history with, with this place, Roy, and, and how you got involved in working here at the Memorial Garden? I was referred here by a Veterans Outreach and Support Centre in Portsmouth, ex-serviceman. I've been suffering from chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, as I now know for over 27 years. When I was in the forces, I asked for help. I was told to go away and get a grip. And gradually my life went downhill from there because I wouldn't ask for help after that. More things happened. Traumas got worse. Eventually got out of the forces in 1990-ish. And then I had over 20 jobs since 1990 because I couldn't hold the job down. And I used to earn money, get enough to live on for a few months, disappear, come back, earn money. And it was a not a very good cycle. 
eventually my wife took me to the drop-in centre. The piece of the place struck me, actually, you know, as I walked into the memorial garden, because it is hidden away on the site as it, well, isn't it's, it? It's, it's almost like a little bit of a secret to, to it, discover. Actually, I think it's Gosport's best-kept secret. And, I mean, during my time in the services, I was a patient in Hasler on several occasions, and I didn't know this place existed. I wasn't really a gardener. I am now. But the main thing about it, it's a very tranquil, peaceful place, and it's somewhere safe for me to go. It meant I had somewhere I could get out of the house and continue the work they'd done with me in turning my life around. And I always leave here feeling better. If we could go back to the very beginning, Eric, why did this hospital get built here? It actually commenced in the 1740s when the Earl of Sandwich, who was the Lord of the Admiralty, petitioned King George II for something to be done for the pitiful sake of the sailors of the day. Prior to Hasler being here, Gosport had a massive hospital called the Fortune Hospital, which was run by a gentleman called Nathaniel Jackson, who was charging the Admiralty somewhere in the region of about three and six ahead a week for the care of patients, and some 700 in number. And when the Admiralty actually carried out a survey, they found carts going through uh, the streets of Gosport with the sick, dead and dying from the ships. They found two or three to a bed in the hospital. And it was from that, the petition to King George II, that Hasler came to be commenced and built. And Queen Victoria actually visited Hasler on many occasions, and she held Hasler in high esteem. And she greatly admired Theodore Jacobson, who was the architect of Hasler, for his foresight in what he'd actually built. He was a, a gentleman banker who dealt in metals. He'd actually designed and assisted with the building of the Foundling Hospital at Coram Field. He, his only other big work was the inner court of Trinity College Dublin and a couple of gentlemen's uh, state houses. Wow, so he was an amateur architect and he built something like Hasla Hospital. That's incredible, isn't it? Some amateur. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Admiral's House, which is one of the largest single dwellings uh, on this site. It's incredibly grand, isn't it? We've walked through a double set of doors. Uh, they're broad, they're tall, the ceilings are high and... You know, you get a, such a sense of faded grandeur as you walk in here at the moment because the architraves on the ceilings are, are, are still in pristine condition even though there are spots of damp on the plaster. Uh, there, there are kind of tiny beaded lampshades. There's a huge wooden curtain rail there and, and I can just imagine the sumptuous material that must once have hung from there to keep the draughts out in this huge entrance hall. It, it really fires the imagination coming into these buildings. It must do that for you, Pat, as you walk around. Yes, yeah, certainly this is a fine building. This is actually 12,000 square feet of a home. It's uh, where the Admiral uh, residence was for the site in, it, in its military time, and it actually was occupied up to, I suppose, four years ago. Really? Yeah. Someone was lucky enough to live here only four years ago? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that must, uh, that must have been quite the experience. I bet they still dine out on that, that they lived in the Admiral's house at the Royal Haslot Hospital. Well, I'm with... Patrick Power, who's director of the uh, developers that have taken over this site from the MOD, most of it now disused, but you've got great plans for it, Pat. Our plans are to uh, get this site back into active use. This site is steeped in history, and a lot of that can be drawn upon. 
And a lot of the uses planned here are around care, health, the continuous care retirement communities, the care home itself. Uh, we're doing a community care hub, which will be a hub for GPs, uh, physiotherapists, um, obviously the conventional uh, residential occupants. Um, it screams history, doesn't it? As does virtually everything on this site as you walk around. You almost feel like each stone could, could have a fascinating story to tell you if, if, if you could only hear what, what it has to say. And I, I wonder whether that makes it a more of a challenge for a developer like yourself, Patrick, that you have to show a real sensitivity to the history of this place. Well, definitely um, it is steeped in history, but I think that's uh, one of its attributes. If you mention Ryle Hasler, most people within the region would, it does not need much explanation even how to get there. Some of the more modern buildings, which, let's face it, are not particularly pretty when compared uh, to this one that we're standing in now, for example, they are going to go under your plans. Yeah, that's correct. The original hospital, which is the, I suppose, set up as the quadrant that faces here, the Admiral's house, there was um, a couple of buildings, like the Crosslink building and the gallery, which were more 70s and 80s. They actually hinder the original architecture and appearance and grandeur of the buildings themselves. They'll be coming down and sensitively then bringing the old buildings back to their original character and preserving them, bringing them back to use for the next century. And Pat, the way you talk about this site, as you walked us around here, it's clear that you have a deep personal fascination for this site. What, what does it mean to you? Well, I think all sites we get involved in, you like to take it um, that you give it your best. It's like a sports person, you're always judged on your last game. If I have to really admit something to you, my latest racehorse is going to be called Royal Hasler. Now, whether it's any good or not, that's a different matter. <laughs> well, it's a great tribute, and certainly with an historical legacy like that over it, I mean, it's, it's bound to be a winner, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Please, God. <laughs> oh, one of the ships going yeah. out. Yeah. Golly. <laughs> there must be something in the way. You know, if you get the ferry going across that, and we, the ship going out... We hear out, this a lot at night in our houses, when the uh, when it's misty. They didn't do that in the war. Mm. They went <laughs> out quietly. So as not to alert. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. Well, joining me now is Julia Massey and Sylvia Bell, both of whom used to work here and have continued their association with the Royal Haslar. Uh, Sylvia, what did you do when you worked here? Well, I was a VAD in the war, that's a nurse. We worked on the wards. What was it like? Oh, very crowded, of course. I was here at D-Day, and then the wards were absolutely full. I particularly remember one little boy, well, he was only 18, not much younger than me then, of course, and he was very, very badly wounded, and they brought him back from France... And his main concern was that his mother, who was a widow, should be eligible for a pension. And that was his whole theme until he died. That has always had a very profound effect on me. Poor boy. I don't think he had a solid bone in his body, except his head. His head was OK. Was it 
distressing at that time to see the sort of injuries that walkers well, I, could inflict? I don't think you had time to be distressed. You just get on with your job. Everybody was badly injured in the ward, so you just took it as routine, really. And at that time, did you have any sense of the history of this place? Obviously, you were going through a, a major historical event anyway, weren't you, during the Second World well, War? Well, we did knew... you? Oh, yes, I think so, because you get a few tales. I remember when the bomb fell in the quadrangle, the hole exposed the drains, and somebody said, oh, this is the way they used to get out, down the drain because it must be quite massive. And then they would get out and get the little boat over to the other side, you know. These were the, 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 uh, sailors. the sailors who were press-ganged into joining the yes, Navy back yes, in the, yes, in, in the 18th right. century. Yeah. Uh, Julia, you were a matron here somewhat later. In the, in the late 80s. I, I first joined here um, in 1968, because being in the Naval Nursing Service, we moved around a lot, so... I think I had four or five appointments over the years to here. My first year, it was very military, and coming from the NHS, that was really quite noticeable how regimented the patients were in the wards. So and it was quite a, a culture change, was it, to come yes, here from but the then, NHS. of course, by the time I w was, was matron, 50% of our patients were civilians. And once civilians started coming in the early 70s in greater numbers, then the whole ethos of the hospital changed even for the servicemen it was a lot more relaxed and like an NHS hospital really. Do you both get that sense of inheriting a legacy and continuing a tradition that at the different eras in which you worked here you know you knew that there were many other women who'd gone before you who'd done very similar roles mm -hmm. and you know after you there were people who came and well, did something. Did, yes. you, did you feel that sense of yes, historical continuity? Yeah. And I think, too, it's not just the uniform people who worked here, but also the civilians in Gosport had a great feeling for the hospital. And the civilians that we had working here were wonderful. And, of course, a lot of their family had been in the Navy or were in the Navy. There was a great feeling and pride, not just from the uniform people, but the civilians in the hospital here. And it, it was a lovely place to work. It was a nice environment, and I, I think for the people who worked here, it, it was a happy place. Yes, I think so. Definitely. Well, Eric, Peter, we have come now onto the site of the paddock, which is where possibly tens of thousands of unmarked graves are... I suppose, underneath our feet right now. Under our very feet. Cranfield University have done quite a few excavations around here, and after each one they keep reassessing the estimation of the number of bodies. I mean, in our days it used to be tens of thousands. They said it could be between 8,000, 20,000. And the last excavation, which they did a few months ago, they found multiple burials with children in. And they're now thinking, well, it could be up to 60,000. They'd have to do about another 50 excavations just to get a better estimate. So we don't really know. And I noticed that there is one uh, monument here to commemorate the burial of, of those who, who lie under our feet. And it's a very simple, actually very moving cross on a stone plinth that says in memoriam, with, with some dates here, 1753 to 1826. Yes, it's Portland stone with a simple cross, wooden cross on top. We as a heritage group feel 
very strongly about those who lie here and their history. There were some stones here in the 18th and early 19th century, but they were all taken away when the next part of the cemetery was uh, built in 1826, and they stopped burying here. With the sale of the hospital and its grounds, there had to be various items of research done from unexploded uh, ordnance and such like, and one of them was the proving of the fact that there were bodies in the ground. 2005, they commenced with licence from the Home Office. Um, part of that agreement of the licence, if any were taken away for forensic archaeological exploration, uh, that they were then reinterred. And those 47 who were lifted were examined. A lot was learnt. We then recommitted them to the ground. And it was quite moving, actually. We held a very short service. We had a Royal Marine bugler paying the last post, more than what they probably got on the day that they were originally interred. But it's the least we could do.